Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. Our goal each episode is to bring you discussion, ideas, and information you can use as foresters and land managers. I'm Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we're both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. So Brad, uh, welcome to episode four. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing fine. And I, I, was, I was thinking about something last night. I was thinking that um, every time we do one of these episodes, we learn something. That's kind of the cool part, isn't it? I mean, I, if you had asked me in episode one if, what we would be talking about in episode four, I wouldn't have guessed it would be, I wouldn't have guessed I would have learned as much by this point as I have about podcasting. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a creative process. And, and one thing I learned is we really um, cannot act to save ourselves. So when we try to script something, it just sounds terrible. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I think this all goes back, Greg, to, you know, the, the genesis of this is us sitting around with a drink saying, you know, and then you talk about something for three hours. And you go, man, that was a great conversation. And it's so hard. You don't script those conversations. Right. right? Yeah. This is This is more like, hey, this is just off of the this is seat of the pants. What's important? What are we talking about? And I, yeah, I agree with you completely. The thing I learned is I am not very good with the script. Yeah. And then we, so just so people know, we've tried to write these scripts and it just kind of comes out like, Oh, look, Brad, we have a guest. <laughs> Welcome, Dan. <laughs> Who could that be at the door? Welcome to Silvacast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so from now on, we should just, we should just wing it. That's yeah, or we just have to, I think you just have to accept that, you know, a lot of the questions we have are, we just have to be organic with them. They have to spring up. They can't just be something that, like, we get from somebody else or, it, or, or it's delivered. So, and I'm okay with that. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, you're riding an edge with that too, right? I mean, sometimes it's like really good. Sometimes it's not, but hey, that's life. And here's my scripted segue. So if you want to just talk off the top of your head with a forester, you can bring up the topic of oak, right? Yeah. Because I've been with the DNR for 28 years and we've been talking about oak that whole time. And so it's still a high interest subject with our foresters. And that's what today's topic is going to be, right? That's right. Let's get down to business. So today, we're fortunate to be speaking with our friend and colleague, Dan Day. Uh, Dan is a research forester with the U.S. Forest Service Northern Research Station, specializing in forest regeneration issues in the hardwood-dominated ecosystems of the eastern United States. Dan has done a lot of really great work on a variety of applied silvicultural issues. Many of you may be familiar with the work Dan has done with bottomland hardwoods, and even recently with Menominee Tribal Enterprises on northern hardwood management issues. What stands out to me, however, is Dan's work on oak silviculture. Dan is, Greg, you would, I think, agree, our go-to silviculturist on oak issues. Today, we'll be talking to Dan about what brought him to oak research, 
what leads to success, not just, and just as importantly, what leads to failure when we're trying to regenerate oak, and what tools we should be considering adding to our silvicultural toolkit. Hey, that wasn't bad for reading the script, was it? <laughs> Practice makes perfect. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. Perfect. Okay, yeah. we'll read a little script here and there. Yeah. But first, you know, we got to have our sponsor today. What is it, Brad? Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by Humdrum Increment Borers. Next time you want to be boring in increments, get a humdrum. Excellent. See, now that's a script I could use. <laughs> <laughs> So welcome uh, to uh, Silvacast, Dan Day. Um, it's uh, nice to have you here. We, uh, we get to see you once in a while way up here in Wisconsin, but um, these days it's kind of hard to come by. So it's good to talk to you, even if it's online. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to see you and hear your voice. And I certainly do miss my visits up in Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, Dan, rumor has it you're originally from Wisconsin. Yeah, when I was about 10, I traveled with the family along the caravan trails from North Carolina to Brown Deer, Wisconsin. Brown Deer, yeah. And, yeah, and it, and it was just a brand new suburb, you know, pushing out into the cornfields at the time. <laughs> wow. That was when well, you were We're claiming you now. This, that's yeah. it. We're claiming you as a badger the now. For, so. the four, I call it the formative years from 10 to 18. Oh, yeah. Wow. Those, are in, yeah. those are important years. Okay. Yeah. I can only imagine what growing up in Wisconsin, taking that part of only living in Wisconsin will do for a person though too. Yeah. So, but then wait a minute, did you go to forestry school when you turned 18 or? Well, my parents moved back to their home in Missouri and I just followed them at the time. And so I, I went to the University of Missouri. Oh, okay. Although my best friend in high school went to Stevens Point. Well, you know, that's, and I was, yeah, yeah, I was on the okay. verge of following him there. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. No points? Oh, come on. No. So, so Dan, can you just um, tell us a little bit about where you work now and, and just what you do? Yeah, right now I'm a research forester with the U.S. Forest Service. I'm part of the Northern Research Station, which goes from Missouri to Minnesota to Maine down to West Virginia. And so I think it's a really nice piece of the country to work in. I've been part of the Forest Service research team here since 1998. And uh, before that, I, I, I've been in forestry since 1979. And uh, I had eight years practicing as a forester with the U.S. Forest Service in Alaska and Idaho. Oh, okay. And I think that's been really important for me to have that kind of practical on the ground forestry experience to, I think it really gives me a different perspective an approach to research. It's much more applied and mm -hmm. problem solving than, you know, other scientists you might run into. And is your research group down there, are you associated with the university? Or well, we're on the University of Missouri campus and we, and most of us have, uh, you know, a, a courtesy appointments with the university that allow us to serve on graduate committees. Um, but we, we do have a, a research unit there, and I'm also the leader of that. And it's a combination of, of forestry and wildlife um, scientists who do work in bats, songbirds, soils, landscape uh, management, and uh, silviculture. 
Hmm. Yeah. And I know your work has been really diverse, Dan. That's what I've always appreciated looking at your stuff. You've done a lot in bottomland hardwoods. Um, I really appreciated. I saw a paper you did with um, on northern hardwoods here in Wisconsin. Um, but it seems like a lot, like the stuff that we've really dug into a lot is your stuff on oak. What brought you to uh, kind of kind of research on oak management? Well, when I left the Forest Service in Idaho, I happened to come back to the University of Missouri to do my PhD. And it just so happens that my project ended up um, letting me work with Paul Johnson. And if you're mm in the world of yep. oak you yep. know that name paul johnson he's the yep. senior author on the oak bible the yep. ecology and civic culture of oak the third edition just came out this past year and i was um, honored to be a part of that update and and so that's where um i mean certainly my education in missouri you know gave me some foundations in oak ecosystems ecology and civic culture but it, it really started in the world of research working with paul johnson Hmm. Wow. That's neat. And so you're, yeah, I'm sorry, Greg. Oh, I was just going to say, we have a couple of Paul Johnson studies just right around La Crosse here where I'm at. So it's yeah. Kind of, hmm. He grew up in the Washburn area. So that's God's country to him. He, he's yeah. very much a, you know, cheese head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bob Rogers was involved in a lot of that work too, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was, they were, they were uh, colleagues together. And then Bob went up to be on the faculty and then um, the whatever dean or director of the natural resources department at Stevens Point and finished yeah. his career there. Wow. So your work with Oak right now, Dan, you know, we've, we've been digging into this and I know Greg and I get tons of questions on Oak management and it seems like, you know, every time we go into the field, whether it's Northern Wisconsin, Southern Wisconsin, everybody, we always want to talk about other types, but it really, when it comes down to questions, they really, really want to know about oak. Um, if you, so your work is in, in kind of that central part of the United States. Um, do you see differences in the way oak is treated in different parts of the country and maybe some of the similarities or differences in how we, how we approach oak? Yeah, there, there, I mean, there's a lot more similarities in how we treat oak and and what the oak problems are, then there are differences. But there are differences, definitely, and especially when you consider, you know, the entire eastern U.S. Uh, you have differences in, in climate, soils, geology. Mm -hmm. uh, you all uh, experienced glaciation. Other people didn't. That affected, you know, the landscape that oak's trying to grow on. And then there may have been, you know, different human history, land history, you know, differences that created different starting conditions um, but there are there are real general patterns too um, deer browsing is a major problem a lot of our oak forests are in the same condition in the sense that there's maybe oak is a, a dominant mature tree in the overstory there may be some small seedlings in in the advanced reproduction but there's nothing in between so there's no evidence that it's the seedlings are recruiting periodically up into the overstory. And then there's, uh, there's always competing vegetation. And of course, that's, that's another difference too. I mean, if in some areas uh, you have aspen or yellow poplar or sugar maple and, mm -hmm. you know, red maple is quite widespread, but the, the suite of competitors can change and that would affect 
it not only is part of the problem of oak regeneration, but it's, it also affects how you might approach solving that. Mm -hmm. uh, when you move, uh, when you, I mean, there's, there's other more human or social factors that may change too. Uh, depending on where you live, there's different state forestry laws and practices or um, different um, social restrictions on what kind of silvicultural practices you can use. Mm -hmm. Herbicides, clear cutting, things like that uh, will vary across regions or within even a state. And so there's those kinds of human differences too. Yeah, I know here in Wisconsin, I was going to say that uh, we have differences in markets too. So what you can cut um, and kind of what practices you can do vary across the state depending on those markets. So that sometimes impacts our work. That's a huge factor. And, you know, a lot of what goes into oak, successful oak regeneration is work that costs money. Mm -hmm. It's not there. I mean, the commercial timber harvest or a commercial thinning is, is part of it, but there's a lot of other work dealing with non-commercial size stems or competing vegetation or trying to combat deer browsing. Um, just all of those things cost money. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so the more markets you have to make more of the work profitable or at least break even, it's very helpful. Yeah. Would you say that's a, um, so you have this broad wealth of experience, you can take a look at the entire country. Is that, is that common across the, the, maybe the country that we have those problems with the necessary requirement that we do a lot of that pre-work, kind of the stuff you were just talking about for oak? Right. That's, I mean, our forest in general, this is a common problem. They're too dense and that creates low light conditions in the understory, which makes it hard for oak seedlings to persist and survive and to grow into a larger, more competitive uh, seedling. If you had to say, like, why is oak regeneration failing um, in many cases? What would those main things be that you would say? So when we, yeah, when we, when we think about the regeneration potential of any species and, th and, and thinking of it in terms of oak, you, you start by thinking of what are the sources of reproduction? And we commonly recognize new seedlings, advanced reproduction, and stump sprouts from the, the overstory after a harvest. And new oak seedlings have very slow juvenile growth. So they're often quickly overtopped after a regeneration release by well-developed and large shade tolerant species or by very fast growing pioneer species. And so they, they just get suppressed and die out under the shade of those developing canopies. And, and then over the years, we've learned that not all big oak trees produce stump sprouts. And, and so if your goal is to maintain oak stocking at the current level or to increase it, you're not gonna get there by relying completely on stump sprouts. And so that's why in oak silviculture, we always say the key is having adequate large advanced reproduction, meaning competitive seedlings that, that can, you know, persist mm -hmm. and, and maintain dominance in the new stand. Now that usually a, a, a common problem is we often treat regeneration as an event 
and we don't think about it until we're ready to regenerate and do the commercial harvest. And that's too late to start dealing with a stand that has low oak regeneration potential. You need, you need to have started 10 or more years before that preparing a population of large advanced reproduction of oak in the understory before you really release it. So it sounds silly, but sometimes I've been out, you know, walking around with a forester and they read somewhere where shelter woods are good for regenerating oak. So they did a shelter wood and then they asked me what I think. And I go, well, it's a nice looking shelter wood, but where's the oak that you released? And, you know, it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So they released a whole bunch of red maple or sugar maple or beech, and they've just made the problem worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we think too much in a single event, kind of. We get into a mindset of thinking about just the regeneration harvest, and we need to be thinking about regeneration as a process that, that is kind of a continuous thing that occurs over decades, and we have to prepare for it to be more successful. So if we have to set that stand up to develop that advanced regeneration ahead of time, so what are those practices that we can do to get that advanced regeneration to develop? Because as you said, in a lot of these stands, they're dense and most of the oak regen just blinks out. Yeah. Well, in a, in a situation like that, you may have one, certainly less than 5%, of full sunlight and that's not enough light for really any of the oak species to survive and to grow so so you need to increase light and and luckily we have control over that because the because the the uh inter interceptors of light are the overstory and a midstory and maybe a, a heavy shrub layer and we can manage that vegetation to control the light levels you know to get them in a range where we want them so if we, if you have a mid-story, a shade tolerant mid-story, and we commonly do in a lot of our forest, you might think about starting there by doing some kind of mid-story removal. You're not really removing it. You're removing the mid-story. A lot of times, depending on how you do that, those stems will sprout. So you're increasing stem density in the reproduction layer, but at least you've gotten rid of that mid-story canopy. And you can do that by herbicides, and there's several ways of applying those. A common one is to do what we call hack and spray, mm -hmm. where you use a hatchet and a little squirt bottle of herbicide and take individual stems out. That keeps them, if it's effective, from sprouting. And another very effective tool is prescribed fire. Uh, that prescribed fire, especially the dormant season, low intensity fires that, we, that are really common, um, are capable of at least top killing hardwood stems up around four inches in diameter at the ground line. And so as long as your mid-story isn't larger than that, prescribed fire is a good way of uh, eliminating or greatly reducing a mid-story canopy. And when you take that out, you're going to increase light up to about 10 or 15 percent of full sunlight. That's a real common result of taking a mid-story out in many, many places across the Eastern US. And, and that's moving in the right direction. The oaks will benefit from that. They'll start, they'll survive better. They'll start growing a little bit, but um, for, for really good growth, you wanna be in the light range of 30 to 50% of full sunlight. And that requires starting to thin the overstory canopy. 
Mm -hmm. And that's where the shelterwood system is often recommended because it is so flexible to depending on how intense your shelterwood harvest is, or um, you can you can regulate how much lightning is in the understory, and you can do that over several stages, which the the traditional shelterwood method you know um, accommodates for. So it's it's often um, doing the mid-story control, either in conjunction with a shelterwood harvest or maybe prior to. Mm -hmm. That was a question I had, Dan. Should that mid-story removal be done when you have, um, say, a good acorn crop and you have new germinants on the ground? Or can you do that when you don't have anything yet and just then wait for a good acorn crop and new germinants to develop or do you need that to happen simultaneously well it it kind of depends i guess on on how you're you're doing it and what else is on the ground and and so if there if you don't have oaks there to begin with then what are you releasing you know if there's a lot of heavy competition in the seedling layer advanced reproduction seedling seedling sprout layer you're you're releasing that. I mean, they, they will benefit from the 10 or 15% of full sunlight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so if you're, but if you're using periodic prescribed burning, you can reduce the mid story and it also knocks the seedling layer back. And then if you aren't getting an acorn crop in, in a timely manner, you can apply fire again and you can kind of use fire to just keep the understory in check and until you get the oak seedlings established and then you would want to not burn for a little while a few years because acorns and young oak seedlings small oak seedlings are as vulnerable as any other species to being killed by fire mm -hmm. um, and this is really cool dan because it kind of sounds to me like because i think traditionally we've always thought about breaking apart like a tending phase and management for a stand and a regeneration phase and it sounds like we need to, as part of that tending, we need to be setting the stage for management or setting the stage for regeneration with that kind of increasing light availability, mid-story removal, and then competition control, which I think a lot of us have, you know, we, we kind of improve the quality of the trees, we improve the stocking, we do stuff like that, but we don't think ahead, you know, two steps to make sure we're, we're getting that stuff in place. Yeah, I think as you said, Dan, too, we tend to think about regeneration when we're ready to harvest timber and and we haven't done all of that kind of monitoring and preparation uh, to get that advanced region. It takes good oak reproduction, takes commitment over time. And, and that, that uh, speaks to, you know, kind of another challenge because, you know, of course the private landowners own most of the resource. And I think I've seen articles where the average landowner tenure of private landowners is seven years or 10 years or something like right. that. So, so every 10 years, you got a new landowner and with a different set of objectives and priorities. I don't know what the tenure is in the Wisconsin DNR or other state or federal agencies, but, you know, staff move around and, and it's, you know, there, there needs to be an institutional commitment and archiving of the plan, the long-term plan. And there needs to be buy-in by the new staff coming in that that's important and I'm going to carry this forward as a good steward and and any one of those places are weak links in a chain and the whole long-term prescription can fall apart yeah. 
So what if you're a landowner, what if you're a landowner, maybe a, more appropriately a forester who walks into a situation where the, they want to start the, they need to do the shelter wood or there's a reason they have to start their management now. So they haven't done the pre-work. Um, can they still do things like say uh, mid-store removal with planting or something else in order to maybe give them a better chance as they go forward? Because I think a lot of our foresters are going to say, this is great, except I haven't done any of that back work. Now what do I do? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a real good point, And there's always two sides to the coin. So to back up just a little bit, working ahead of time, incrementally increasing the light. Why? I mean, that's kind of a cautious approach to, and, and one reason people do it is because there are, especially the fast growing pioneer species out there that are shade intolerant and fast growing. And so you're trying to give light oak enough light, but not in, invigorate the fast growing shade intolerant species. And, and, and so they, so you're trying to use the overstory shade as, as a form of vegetation control in the understory. Now that, that uh, incremental increase in light does help oak, but really, I mean, if you just think of what's best for the oak, you want to give it more than 15, 10 or 15% of full sunlight. You want to give it 30 or 50% of full sunlight or, or more depending on the species. And if you do that, you're gonna unleash all the other competing vegetation. But that's okay if you're ready and committed to doing vegetation management after release. So one approach is to incrementally increase the light, mid-story removal, you know, 10 years before the final harvest, waiting for a good acorn crop. And, but another approach is if you have oak in the understory, then to release it. But you better be prepared and you better be monitoring. And within two or three years, you're probably, as that regeneration layer starts closing in on the oaks, you're gonna have to do something. And at that point, herbicides gets a little bit tough because they're not selective, you know, whether it's an oak or a maple or whatever, it's, they're all vulnerable to many of the um, approved herbicides we can use. Prescribed fire is a really good tool at that time. And, but you have to do something. You can, yeah. you, can you know, you, you have mechanical, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you, you can kind of think of it as crop tree release, you know, at regeneration to go out and single out oaks, oak reproduction across the site and release them mechanically with herbicides or just release the whole site by burning it. Yeah. Do you see differences? Uh, we kind of talk about oak like it's a monolith, but do you see differences between oak species and how this works? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it, that's something I have to keep reminding myself that um, we have something like 90 oak species in the U.S. I forget how many are, you know, in the East. How many oak species do you have in Wisconsin? They're not all the same. So there's differences in shade tolerance. Quercus alba, you know, white oak is, is uh, one of the more shade tolerant oak species. Um, northern red oak, black oak are, you know, kind of relatively intermediate to that. And then scarlet and post oak are very shade intolerant. So, I mean, within oaks, you have a wide range of shade tolerance. And that affects how you would approach managing light in the woody structure, the overstory and the midstory, depending on what oak species you're wanting to favor or you have to work with. There's differences in early growth rates. You know, scarlet oak, northern red oak, they have relatively fast early growth. And white oak and post oak and 
bird oak are much slower. You know, that affects a lot of things. That affects their ability to compete over time in a young stand. That affects um, how quickly they develop bark thickness. And that's very important when it comes to prescribed burning. The thickness of the bark pr protects the cambium from being killed by the heat of any kind of fire. And as bark thickness increases, the the protection of the cambium in, you know, increases exponentially. So that's really important. And in general, when any tree grows larger, its bark gets thicker. Now there's differences among species as, mm -hmm. as to how fast that happens and to how thick it eventually gets. And, and so you, you know, like a silver maple never really has thick bark. Cottonwood gets very thick bark. Bur oak gets very thick bark. You know, among the oaks, there's differences in, in just mm -hmm. that, uh, the rate of bark thickness and the, and the amount of bark thickness. I know, Dan, you, uh, I think, had worked on a recent paper with others about some of that uh, damage to oak caused by fire and economic considerations with that. So what's the long and the short of that? Do we need to worry about economic loss? with the use of prescribed fire in these oak stands? Well, um, fire is a potential threat to, to the, the economic value of trees, definitely. The potential is there. And the more we understand it, the more we understand what its impact is, the better we can make decisions about, you know, either protecting a, a forest from wildfire or the use of prescribed burning and how we use it prescribed fire and we and the, and we can minimize the negative impacts so i mean in a nutshell number one you know when i was a forester growing up and being trained in the 1970s it was get the fire out of the woods and get the cattle out of the woods right. you know that was forestry yeah. 101 and and so fire i grew up as you know being trained fire is evil and 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 certainly a lot of our oak forest that were developing from the 1930s, you know, the, re the recovery of the forest right after the first logging boom. There, there was a lot of fire, intense fire, fire burning in extensive heavy slash loadings. And so they were hot fires and they caused large damage, severe damage to right. trees. And there was a lot of rotten decay over the decades that, that followed from that. And I just, the point is I want to make is that prescribed burning that we do today is not like those kind of wildfires um, after the initial settlement. And, and so there's a lot less risk of a prescribed fire severely injuring a tree. Now, wh where you see that happening most is where there's some kind of heavy fuel loads up against your residual yeah. trees. And you can get a severe scar from that. But that's something you can manage, you know. And there's, uh, Pat Rose did a study where, uh, you know, if he was able to pull the slash six feet away from the tree, that pretty much reduced the threat of scarring that tree. So, you, you know, in the logging and thinning, you can, um, you know, have some slash requirements around re residual trees and manage that. But there are, there are some new studies and and I just encourage you to keep your eye on the literature because a paper just came out and a couple months ago people are paying more attention in research about trying to quantify 
the damage. And so one of the first modern uh, studies was by Joe Marshall, and he looked at fire effects on the value and volume in red oaks in Missouri. And these are trees that were 10 inches in diameter at the, or larger the, when they were first scarred. And this is 15 years after, up to 15 years after the tree was scarred. And what he found was there was about a three or 4% reduction in volume and a 10% reduction in value. So, the, so there is, this, it really wasn't that bad. And I don't know if, if a 10% reduction in value scares you, but I guess the way, at least you have that information to make a decision right. whether I want to give that up or not. And, and you have to ask, is that worth what I gained from the prescribed yeah. fire? Well, especially if you're going to be investing in that long-term management, like you described, you know, you might lose 10% on that end, but you, if you're investing it kind of on that other side, it could be a wash. You might, it might be easier to regenerate oak with the presence of fire over that long period of time. The 10% might actually be cheap in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, from the fire, you're able to manage the seedbed to reduce deep litter layers and improve oak germination and seedling establishment. You can start exhausting the seed bank of competing species. You're, you're knocking out the midstory and the understory, at least knocking it back. And there's just a lot of other ecological benefits to that. You know, I'm, I'm concentrating on trees right now, but there's um, native biodiversity, ground flora benefits. There's maybe wildlife habitat benefits that only really only fire can give you. So is all of that worth 10% loss in value of at commercial harvest? You know, you have to answer that. Mm -hmm. From time to time, Dan, uh, we actually do have a listener or two and uh, we get a question and we have this thing called the Dropbox. Well, this isn't the Dropbox right now, but this is a really relevant conversation about the use of fire in a forester's toolbox uh, for oak. And uh, we have uh, a listener, Jess, uh, way out in Vermont, which is, I think, really cool. And Jess is wondering about the use of fire in that toolbox in terms of, you know, how widespread are we going to be able to use fire across the landscape to manage these oak stands? So kind of that social aspect. And then two, a lot of these stands, as you said, have become denser. Um, they've become more mesic. And so is it going to be more difficult to apply fire within those stands? Yeah, well, that's a real good point because, you know, historically, a lot of the eastern landscape had some kind of what I, you know, frequent fire. You know, maybe it was every 10 years, every 20 years, or every two years, depending on if you're in southern Florida or southern Texas or in Wisconsin. And, and so, you know, that led to the widespread distribution and dominance of pines and oaks in the eastern U.S. and, and other fire-adapted species. And, and so now, you know, we've pretty much eliminated fire from the landscape and the forests have changed, not in a good way for oaks anyways, or pines. Mm -hmm. And so we have a widespread landscape problem, but we aren't, we aren't able or ready yet or capable now of using fire on that large landscape. So, I mean, fire's not going to be able, for many reasons, to solve the landscape issue of fire and other fire-adapted communities. And, and we are, in terms of agencies, state and federal and conservation organizations, we're, we're starting to 
you know, have more interest in prescribed burning, learning how to do it, um, starting to slowly increase the amount of acres we're treating, but it's still a drop in a bucket right. for yep. what's, what the problem is. And then there's maybe the social issues of smoke problems and human health and, and, you know, maybe just public perception is negative against fire or they're fearful. Uh, um, of, so the, yeah, there's all those social constraints to prescribe to using prescribed fire. Those are things that can change over time with good education, outreach, and, you know, putting out, making people aware of the history, the current role of fire, and what are some of the alternatives? I mean, there are alternatives. Uh, they don't all address equally the things that fire can address, but fire is never the silver bullet alone. It's always used in combination with other practices, herbicides, timber cutting, thinning, hack and spray, whatever. It all goes together. And it can be used to control invasive species, depending on the species. But usually it's done in combination with other practices. It can be used to control stand density, but it has its limitations. So you mentioned a lot of our forests are mature and you have big trees out there. Well, the kind of prescribed fires we do, by and large, have no effect on that large overstory density. And so if you need to lower that, you got to do it by thinning and timber harvesting. And um, so, so it's fire is part of, is one tool and it's used often with many other tools. And the combination of tools and the sequencing of those tools and the timing of application are all really important and need to be responsive to your condition and your challenges on your specific sites. And that's something you have to understand and decide and spell out in your silvicultural prescription. I don't know where you guys are at, but I run into this attitude a lot uh, in many places. For some reason, when I grew up, I thought way much more broadly about silviculture than a lot of people do. To me, I manage vegetation to meet the landowner's <laughs> objectives. If it's butterflies or flowers or veneer timber, you know, that's what guides my recommendations to the landowner. And I use anything I can to do that. And, but the, the attitude I've run into in a lot of places is much more narrow. Silvicultures, in some cases, silviculture is the timber harvest. Right. And, you know, and it's just trees. And that's all we're talking about. And so I, I think um, we need to move in a broader perspective, you know, and look at the entire ecosystem and how everything's connected and what the role of fire is in that. And I think it has a role, but it, it's not the silver bullet yeah. to achieve every objective. Well, don't get us going, Dan. I see Brad over there on our Zoom call. He's just shaking his head. That sounds so familiar, Greg. I mean, we've been having <laughs> these conversations here the last couple of weeks, the exact same thing. I, I, Dan, I was going to ask you a question. So the other thing I've been seeing, and, and it sounds to me like uh, this is probably easy, but uh, if you look forward with climate change, a lot of the a lot of our uh, forecast, or maybe not forecast, but they'll say, "Hey, it's hotter and drier. This should be good for oak." But it sounds like unless we change dynamics, things aren't really going to change for oak. Yeah, I am not a hardcore climate scientist, so I'm more of a dirt forester who understands. To me, uh, my perspective of climate is it does affect vegetation and processes of ecosystems, but it does so over big areas, over big time scales and in big ways. 
So it sets really broad boundaries on what species can exist somewhere, what species are best adapted to that and can, you know, rise to dominance better. But humans are, you know, like the main disturbance agents um, on earth. And we have so much control over what vegetation develops and what species rise to dominance and by either not doing anything or by intensive management. We have total control within these broad boundaries of climate. And so we have to pay attention and understand, you know, climate and species requirements and relationships, the ecology or the silvics of species, the interactions of plants and communities within climates. And, and if, 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 we, if it gets hotter or colder, or if more of the moisture is in the winter or the summer, you know, we, we have to understand how that um, changes the species competitiveness and its uh, interaction with other species. Um, or even, you know, how climate affects animals and then those animals interact with vegetation for good or bad for the vegetation. Uh, so it's all, it's all connected. You have to keep an eye on it. You have to be looking down the road because if what trees were regenerating now could be there for a hundred or 300 years. And it's like, what's the climate going to be then? I don't know, but we want to give it a good, you know, best effort to understand it and plan for the future. And then just follow some basic good guidelines like di diversity, you know, the, uh, the more diversity you have, the more the system is buffered against unknown mm -hmm. future threats or changes in the environment or climate. And, but uh, just because the, the silvics of a species says it should do well in that area, it still has to colonize or get established on that site. And it still has to today compete with what's there and become dominant to be around in a hundred years when the climate's, you know, really different and supposedly yeah. favoring it. So it's, it is a challenge. Um, I don't know. I, I am, I can only imagine it's hard for landowners and managers to wrap their minds around that, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. There's so many different uh, topics that we could explore <laughs> with you. And before we get any further, I want to, I want to just say um, maybe in the future, Brad, we're going to have Dan back and maybe talk about like so you mentioned some of your work outside of like production timber management. So oak woodlands and savannas and that type of objective. And that's a whole nother world that we could talk about today. Yeah. I'd be glad to. Yeah. Just the but, ideas behind restoration, I think are are critical to forestry as we go forward. Mm -hmm. So I think it'd be a great conversation. But kind of bringing it back to, you know, where we started out today, talking about regeneration of oak for foresters. So what I hear you saying is that we need to think about oak regeneration more as this longer term process. We need to get into those stands early and start to monitor what's there for regeneration and assess what our strategy is going to be long term. And then we need to start, we can start using our tools like playing with the light levels in the vegetation to stimulate and develop that advanced regeneration because that seems like really the key that we've 
that's been our mistake in the past, right? We just haven't thought about that until it's too late, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so you're right on. Uh, just one other thing you made me think of is, you know, if you don't have oaks, we got to get them established. So, you know, maybe that's where you focus. What do I need to get them established? The literal air is too thick. There's not enough light. I, I either need, you know, do I have acorn production capacity in mm -hmm. the overstory or, or do I, you can go in there and underplant. And that works really well. Artificial regeneration works well. Uh, the seedlings are, you know, vulnerable to all the things that natural seedlings are. And, and initially even more so because you put nursery stock out there and it's like ice cream cones in the forest for deer mm -hmm. and rabbits. So there can be some added complications initially, but in terms of how the, a, a natural seedling reacts to changes in the environment to a planted seedling, it's pretty much the same. Um, so what you know for works for natural regeneration is going to work well for artificial regeneration. And it gives you a lot more control over the timing of things with your operations. I know that's the big logistical problem. You know, you create the seed bed, the seed doesn't come, you lose the seed bed. You know, you open up a stand, the seedlings aren't there, you know, and, and so you lose the benefit of whatever silviculture you just did. And so you have more control over making sure um, you at least have oak reproduction on the site through artificial regeneration. Yeah. Now we come full circle because that Paul Johnson study you were talking about, um, or I was talking about here in the lacrosse area, that was an underplanting or post clear-cut planting, you know, and they basically found just what you said, that, that the planted seedlings work and they grow, but you've got to keep the vegetation. You got to manage the vegetation or you'll right. lose them. Absolutely. And another thing to early on think about, which I just thought of, was invasive species. Right. And a lot of them, I mean, all the species are different, so you have to know what you got and understand its ecology. But a lot of them are adapted to disturbance. And a lot of them are, so the more you open up a stand, the more you're favoring them. A lot of them are adapted to fire. Uh, so fire alone is not going to control them. And you can make an invasive species problem really bad by starting your oak silviculture without dealing first with the invasive species. So that might even be the first step <laughs> yep. is, is dealing with the invasives in your area and in the surrounding areas and, and then move into just the logical sequence of, do I have oak seedlings there? Yes or no. What do I need to get them there? They're, they're there, but they're small. They need more light. How do I do that? And just, you know, work your way through the thought process. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea of uh, thinking about kind of controlling that light level in sort of sequences of, you know, as you said, the mid-story removal, maybe that's a stage. And then, then maybe you go to that seeding cut of the shelter wood uh, to then start to get more growth on those seedlings and get that light level higher. Again, it just kind of goes back to that process thing, right? That we're talking yeah, about. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, this has been great, Dan. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I know you guys are doing really good work up there in Wisconsin, so keep it up. Yeah. I just feel like this conversation, Brad, is, as I said, we got a ton more stuff that we could talk about. Oh. We have, you know, a limited podcast segment. Otherwise, Haley's going to yeah. give us the big hook here. And this conversation, <laughs> we could be having the same, we could be going all night and all day with this conversation because 
there's yeah. just so much out there. So we'll have you back again in the future. Otherwise, next time you're working up here with us, you know, there is always the after hours silviculture conversation that can go on much yeah. longer. Those are the best ones, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been honored and enjoyed, you know, being a part of your podcast and I'm always willing to, you know, talk about other things too. And, and I learn as much in talking with landowners and managers as they might get out of me. So it's a personal benefit to me to talk with experienced, you know, expert foresters like you all. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for yep. wor working at that kind of that junction between research and the actual field foresters. Cause I think that's really, that applied work is so important and that's, that's what we need out here in the field. Yep. Thanks. That drives my life. <laughs> That's my niche in the ecosystem. <laughs> That's right. Good niche. Yep. Thanks, Dan. Yep. Thanks, All Dan. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. Want to stay up to date with Silvacast? Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW-Stevens Point's Forestry Education and Development Initiative by emailing fedi at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or simply leave the uh, comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Thanks, Brad, and take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team. Haley Freider, our great editor. Noah LeMaid, our IT guru and our theme music by Paul Freider. And a special thanks to UW-Stevens Point's Forestry Education and Development Initiative. Have a good day, everybody.